You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Passage we're going to be in is 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. If you do not have one today, there should be one underneath a seat in front of you. And if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is God's word. Praise be to God. (laughs) Hey. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. I'm so happy that you're here. My name's Court, and I am one of the pastors here at Providence. And um, some of you, we joked a, a little bit whenever we decided that I would uh, get a chance to update you guys this morning. Uh, Ty and Brendan were joking that some of you probably don't even know me. So you're like, why are they cheering for this guy? You know, um, I have for the last 70 days been out of the country trying to do the necessary work to, to finalize the adoption of uh, my wife and I, our daughter from a foreign country. And so I wish I could stand here this morning and say that it's all done. It's finally over. And we brought our little girl home, but um, we're still working on trying to get her back into the United States right now. My wife's still overseas, over 7,000 miles away, fighting to bring her home. But uh, I am, I'm here so that we could get our son and make sure that we're basically kind of like a playing man-to-man defense right now with the kids on different sides of the world. So that's how it's going in our house. Um, and the elders got together and thought it would be good if I maybe gave everyone an update. I know many of you uh, have been praying for us, not only for like the last 70 days, but for the last four years throughout this process. And so Uh, The elders got together and said, hey, it might be a good time that uh, I give an update of what's transpired over the last few months. Um, And then we can kind of ask you guys to to pray for us and to continue to pray that we can finally turn the page and close the deal on this adoption. So also this morning's text is from 1 Peter. We're in the sermon series in 1 Peter. And the the passage, actually, Peter is addressing human institutions and how we relate to good and bad authority. So originally I was just going to do a standalone, but then we're like, I think I have, you know, something to say about good and bad authority over the last few months. So maybe we'll just talk about it uh, and, uh, and we'll go through the text. It was already pre-planned. So we thought, you know, this might actually work out. So uh, also because my wife and I's adoption story is so full, chocked full of examples about good and bad authority, uh, we thought, hey, let's talk about how we can battle that together as Christians. So before I do jump in and give a little update and then get into the text, what I'd love to do is pray, pray for us. If you would pray with me, let's just ask that the Spirit would minister to, us, minister to us through God's Word this morning and encourage us, admonish us, help us uh, as we all need those various things in various ways. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll, I'll lead us. Father, I come to you with open hands. My brothers and sisters, under the sound of my voice, I ask that you would help them to do the same. If our hands are tightly gripping onto something that we think that we need or we think that we want, we ask, my God, would you help us to release that so we can gain and receive what you have for us? Father, there's various different needs, various different stories, and I'm painfully aware that Morgan and I's story is just one among many in this room. And so I pray for all the stories that are represented here that that you would minister to each and every one by the power of your word and by the help of your Holy Spirit. Give strength to those who are weak and weary. Give peace to those who are confused and downtrodden. Give hope to those who are hopeless. And most of all, Jesus, unite us all in the hope that not only did you come from heaven to earth to save us, but you're coming again to establish your kingdom forever and ever. And we look forward to that, Jesus. Forgive us where we haven't looked forward to that, where we have bought into the lie that this earthly kingdom can give us what it never will. We look forward, Jesus, to seeing you face to face 
where you will sit rightly on your throne, not only in heaven, but on earth. And you'll wipe all the tears from our eyes. We look forward to it, God. And so now by the power of your word, speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So for those who you might not know me, I'm gonna do a little bit of time kind of updating you on, you know, just my wife and I. We are, Morgan and I are high school sweethearts, so we've been together for a long time. We married very young at 19 and 20 years old. It's not a recommendation, that's just a fact of what we did. Um, and during our premarital counseling, we, we knew in our premarital counseling, we were, we were confident we wanted to adopt. And so this was not something that just came out of nowhere. It was something that was pre-planned. You know, before we said, I do, we had made this plan together. We wanted to adopt uh, a child. And so we agreed um, and we thought it mirrored the gospel. And even more than that, we, we truly believe that, and we, we believe this at Providence, but personally, like we believe that adoption is not only a good thing like the good people do, uh, we believe that it's absolutely necessary for Christians to step into the space of adoption and that it's the call of Christ that we might step in. It doesn't mean every family is going to adopt, but we believe that Christians should rally around the idea and the, um, the actual act of adoption because like, for instance, if we're going to be like pro-life and the Imago Dei, then we need to be all about everything that it's encapsulated with that. We can't just be against child abandonment, abandonment, child abuse, and things like abortion. We need to be about the business of saying, and we want those children to be in forever families. And some of us are willing for those families to be our families. And so it was a conviction of ours. And so April of 2017, we finalized the adoption of our son, Jonas, which many of you know. And so this is an international adoption. We didn't actually plan on that one. That wasn't a premarital talk. That one happened a little bit unexpectedly. But uh, in 2017, we had already been through like a two and a half year process. It was grueling. Um, we had been on our bonding trip for our son in December of 2016. And they, we had expected to get a court case in January of 2017, but lo and behold, we actually were held a few months back because a plane had crashed in the country that we were adopting and a plane had crashed like through the airport. And for whatever reason, the, the uh, government organization that, that apparently does humanitarian aid for plane crashes also does like international adoptions. Don't ask me why this is true, but this is true. And I remember back then just thinking like, how could we be the family that this happens to? And little did I know that that was just like the tip of the iceberg for us. Um, we stayed in country that year in 2017 for almost 60 days. And during that time, we found out that our son had a little biological sister. And we didn't know this before. So we found out that she was already in an orphanage and she was under a year old. She'd be available for adoption after she became a year old. And they asked if we would consider adopting her. And so we prayed and quickly decided, even before we ever left the country with our son, that we would do what was necessary to adopt her. And we started the journey for Jane, our daughter. And so uh, we thought, and, and what we were informed was that we probably could get this thing done by the end of the year because a few things were working in our favor. You know, they already knew us. We'd already done this. And we also uh, were adopting a sibling, you know, and if you know anything even about like stateside adoption, that's already kind of like in the law, right? So we were like, awesome, this is going to be great. Um, except it wasn't. So for the next three years, we fought just to get our bonding trip scheduled. Uh, what was originally going to be about six months just lingered on and on. Uh, the country closed to all international adoptions at the end of 2018, and we were pretty devastated. And then March of 2019, they reopened, and we had this little ray of hope. I remember Morgan and I were on our anniversary trip to New York City, and we heard the news like they'd reopened. So we're thinking, okay, next week we're going to get our invitation. Uh, one day later, the next call that we got was from our American side adoption service provider saying that they were closing the program to the nation that we were adopting from. So we had to start over with a new agency. We did all the paperwork again for a second dossier. If you don't know what a dossier is, it's just a lot of work. That's, I don't know how else to explain it. It's just a lot of work, a lot of documents. And we did a second one. And in the early fall of 2019, we were ready with our second agency to get the letter. And we received at a staff retreat, we received an email that um, our new agency had lost their accreditation due to some uh, violation of another family in another country. They had basically lost all their accreditation. So we were set back again. Uh, and so now we had to find a third agency. And uh, we did find a third agency and we did uh, the dossier again. And uh, after three years, we were finally scheduled for a trip to go February of 2020. So some of you might be up to date now because we did go in February 2020 this year to visit our little girl who we met at six months old. Now she was almost four, which is a really bittersweet thing, you know, because we got to see her. Thank God there was a culmination of a lot of prayers, but it's also bittersweet because you're seeing her as an older girl now. And so 
Uh, we left in early March after that 10-day bonding trip, and we're thinking, okay, we're going to schedule the court hearing for the next month, but you guys all know where I'm going with this. This is the first thing we do is land and COVID-19 quarantine starts. And so we, every month, continue to get our court hearings rescheduled because of COVID-19. And basically, so far in our story, we had been thwarted by, if you're looking at First Peter 2, every human institution that possibly could thwart us had decided this was the one, this was the one family they were going to thwart. And... Uh, particularly governments. So there's a lot of human institutions, right? And we'll get into that. But particularly governments had decided that we were just on the bad side of that coin. And, uh, and it's rough, right? Like if any of you have ever dealt with governments in this way, you feel like they're asking them to do something that's so simple and basically human. Why would they not do this? And yet we waited, you know? And so finally we had another court hearing that was rescheduled for July. And so I talked with, uh, the elders and friends. And I said, listen, this next court hearing that we get in August, I'm not going to I'm not going to let it get rescheduled. I'm going to try to find a way to get on a plane and, and just try to like make my way over there in some MacGyver type way. And so that's what I did. You know, it was, it was actually, I'll admit, like probably a little sketchy, but I just booked flights and I didn't book like a whole all the way flight. I booked like individual flights. So it looks like I'm coming from different countries. It was sketchy, but I did. And uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to make it there. So I was supposed to land in, on the 3rd of August in country, and then the next day would be our court hearing. So I boarded a flight on August 1st this last uh, a few months ago. I landed in Istanbul on August 3rd, and my flight was canceled. So then I'm stuck, and this is what I was worried about. So I'm scrambling, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And by the grace of God, I end up somehow getting booked on a flight that I had no business being booked on. Uh, there was a repatriation flight, and I got on it. And... Um, I landed in, in, uh, on August the 4th at 8 a.m., and I needed to be in court by 3 p.m., which is going to be a quick turnaround because I had to get through all the customs and then get, drive to the other side of the country to go to this court case. And, and instead, I ended up being held in customs for 10 hours as the U.S. Embassy refused to write a letter to allow me into the country. So that was the beginning of sorrows as I waited. And, uh, but after some heated discussions with myself and the consular, I was let in finally to the country, and our court hearing was rescheduled for the 6th. So you think like, okay, here we are, finally we're here, this makes sense, like there's siblings, everything's like teed up for us, the judge, this should be easy. August the 6th is our court hearing, and it was anything but that. We had our, August the 6th was a preliminary court hearing is what they told us, and so now the nearest court hearing we can schedule you is seven days away. So we waited, I waited another week. On August 13th, I had a second court hearing, and everyone's speaking in Russian, but something's going wrong. And I'm kind of hearing from a... Uh, through the mask of an, an elderly uh, gal who was translating for me, but I don't really understand what's happening. I just know it's not good. I got to come back again the next day for court. So I come back again the next day for court, and I'm having to argue with the prosecutor who is not going to agree that we should adopt our daughter. And I won't get into why, but it's basically a bunch of bureaucratic nonsense that has nothing to do with our actual application. So he disagrees, but now it's the judge's decision to make. And so I'm sitting outside the courtroom praying and God, please let this judge see it right. So this is the human institution again, right? You're hoping that some good authority comes through. And by the grace of God, in that moment, he did. He ruled in our favor. Now, it's like celebration moment, but kind of, because the national law for our children's uh, home nation means that there's a 30-day appeal period that anyone can come in and say, we disagree with this. That includes the prosecutor that just disagreed with it. <laughs> and so... I went back home and lived, or not home, I went back to the apartment that I was living in and lived the Soviet life for another 26 days alone. And on September 9th, after like really pushing to get the embassy to write that letter that they didn't want to write, and they finally did when they were, you know, forced to by the Department of State for my, my wife to come into the country so we could go get our daughter. Uh, on September 9th, she came into the country. On that same day, we got the word that the prosecutor had appealed the judge's ruling, which means that now we had to be appealed to go to the next regional court. And so the next week we spent fighting going to the chief prosecutor's office. So this would be like going to Washington, D.C., right? And going to the, the boss of this guy who just appealed and telling him he didn't do his job. Here's the law. We wrote this long letter. I know more about Kyrgyz civil law than I probably should because I did all this study and write these long letters, and then get them translated and sent it in. And then we wait to hear anything. And you don't have to hear anything for 14 days, according to the human institution. So the problem is that I've been here already for, at this point, 45 days, and I'm ready to hear a little bit sooner than that. So I stood outside for four straight days, just pacing every day, waiting, and telling the guy, I need to talk to this guy, I need to talk to this guy. And obviously, I'm like tall, white guy, red beard in this country. I don't belong, and I'm pacing the front of a government building. You know, it's just probably not good. But it ended up turning in our favor in that 
we, somebody comes out of the gate because it's a big gate and says, hey, you guys come in. And the girl turns to me and says, this is the chief prosecutor over the country. He said he's seen you for four days and he says, you're not going to leave him alone so you can come in and talk to him. So we did. And uh, once again, you're in that opportunity where you've had a lot of bad authority and we got some good authority. This man said, yes, this is wrong and we're going to overturn this appeal. And so then you think, okay, this is over, right? Now we can kind of go through the final process, get the medicals, go get our daughter, get to the embassy. But no, that's not going to happen. We then found out that we had to go through another final court hearing in one city and then get all of our documents sent back to the other city in order to get a final stamp, but not just a stamp, then another signature, but not just that signature, but then all of our documents had to be transferred back to that city before we could get the decision. But not just that, it has to be through a courier. I can't take those documents. So there was a lot more of me pacing in front of government buildings. And finally, once we had all of those things, I was excited and we were able to finally get the final stamp signature and she became legally our daughter, which is huge, right? It's a big celebration. Yes. And then uh, I've been waiting this moment, which is finally we get to go to the U.S. Embassy and things are going to be okay. You know, if you've ever been overseas for long enough, the U.S. Embassy is like this little piece of heaven because it's actually U.S. soil. You know, whenever you step into the building, you're like, I'm in the United States now, even though you're not, like it genuinely is. So it's... I'm looking forward to this day, all right? Um, And we get there, and the U.S. Embassy informs us that our documents, for reasons totally outside of our control, were received out out of order, and that what we should do is go back and negate our adoption decision, take our daughter back to the orphanage, and start over. And so, I said, no, I wouldn't do that. And that was the beginning of a rough relationship between myself and the consular, and all of this time, I'd been emailing back and forth. There's this long email chain about these upcoming elections in the country that I was concerned about. And I'm not talking about our elections. That's its own thing. I was talking about this election in the country that we were in. I was worried because there's a lot of talk about this being bad. And October 4th, we're still in the country. The elections happen. And by October 5th, there are protests. And to make a long story short, I, I ended up getting caught out outside like having dinner one night, the protests start happening. I have to make my way back home with flash grenades going off. There's riot police, it's crazy. And there's an overthrow of the government that night. And they storm the, the White House. They do have a White House, the president's uh, residence, and they lit the top story on fire and overthrew the government. So um, I'm already booked to leave because my wife and I had already made the decision that we're gonna try to parent one child on each side of the, you know, the world. And now we're wondering, what are we going to do? Well, October 6th comes, and there was, the election results were reversed from the 4th, so that was good news. And they were going to, it seemed like there was some hopeful resolution. There was no more violence. Things were done. They were going to put in a new parliament. And so on October 7th, my wife was like, you need to go, fly home. And we looked like that we had a lot of traction. Finally, the embassy was moving. Finally, the Department of State had, had ordered them to make some decisions. And on October 9th, Uh, with one document that we needed, the last document for our visa. At 12 o'clock, the prime minister resigned. The government shut down completely, and my wife is still there, waiting for that one document to be signed. So as we stand, Jane is legally our daughter, but the U.S. government will not give her the visa needed to travel to the United States. So we have no idea what those in authority in the U.S. government are going to do or why they've already chosen to do what's taken them so long to do so far. Um to just help our family get help Morgan and Jane get to safe safety. So really the end, I wish it wasn't so bittersweet, but the end and the request from you guys is really just please pray and ask God that Morgan and Jane can get home safely and soon, because we don't really know much else other than that. So it's the kind of the worst because I'm apart from her like 7,000 miles and you know, uh, yeah, we're just trying to make the best of it. So that brings me to our text this morning, which is, What do we do when we experience the worst sides of human institutions? (laughs) How do Christians respond? And listen, you heard my story. It's personal to me, but I think it's helpful for us all to ask this because we've just spent the last, I don't know what, since March, like basically having a national conversation about this. And I say conversation as a euphemism. It hasn't actually been a conversation. It's just been really vitriolic and crazy. What do we do when human institutions fail us? when the ones whom God has set up to wield the sword for our good, the ones whom God has sent in order to punish the evildoers to enact justice and to do good, they end up enacting injustice and doing bad. What do we do? How do we respond? 
And Peter was no stranger to some pretty terrible and corrupt authority. So this actually gives me some hope because I feel if I'm not careful, I can be a real martyr, you know, like, man, I've been through what no one else has been through. But Peter, you know, he had a guy that led the country that he was in that was pretty rough. If you don't know him, his name was Nero. And uh, I would encourage you to Google him, not with the kids around, and just look at some of the stuff that he did. To give you an idea of how evil this guy was, he had a, a habit of using human beings that were dissidents of his regime as human torches at his dinner parties just to light up the dinner table. That's how he handled protests. So he wasn't exactly like the guy that you wanted to invite over for Thanksgiving. He's an evil dude, an awful dude, a malicious man, a savage man. And he was basically the emperor of Rome at the time. And Peter's writing at that time saying, this is how we should endure. And this is how we should also engage with the ruling authorities. So As we jump in, I think the biggest question that I want to answer is, how are we supposed to engage with all human institutions? So I'm going to talk a little bit about government because that's my particular uh, expertise at the moment of having to deal with bad government. But what about all human institutions, all those that are in authority? How do we handle it? And Peter gives us some, some guidance here. So let's start with verse number 13 through 14. Here's what Peter says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Now, this is big. Peter's theological basis for this statement is so, so important, specifically for us in our time. Peter is an apostle, and he has a baseline expectation about human beings, the human condition, and humanity itself. And this is Peter's baseline expectation. Because he believes the word of God and he believed Jesus at his word, Peter believes that we are broken, sinful people. We were made in the image of God, but we were also fallen in Genesis 3. And therefore, if we look to any human institution, here's what you can expect. Proximal justice, not perfect justice. There has never been in the history of the world since Genesis 3, any human court that has ever been perfectly just. It's only been proximally just. And it's really, it's grading it on a curve. It's pretty much as a rule, not been that great. And the reason is because all institutions are made up of human beings. Human beings, although made in the image of God, are flawed at their very core because they're sinners in need of grace. And so because these broken people make up these human institutions, they make human decisions that are also broken. And those human broken decisions end up hurting people. And so we have to know that this is Peter's baseline for what he's telling us here is that Peter believes that human institutions can't be perfect. You cannot find yourself under the authority of perfect justice except in Christ. Now, this runs totally contrary to what the popular notion of our culture is right now. Here's the narrative that's coming in our culture. The basic narrative of our culture is that all injustice and brokenness that individuals experience, they experience it because of systems and institutions, not because of individual sin. And I just want you to know, the Bible disagrees with this vehemently. The Bible doesn't say that we experience, now hear me on this, I'm not saying that you haven't been a victim of an institution, that's why we started with a story about how we've been a victim of an institution. But here's what we need to know, why are institutions victimizing people? It's because they're made up of other people. They're made up of individuals who individually sin and individually do dark things, do broken things, do hateful things, do malicious things. And those individuals are responsible for those individual sins. And so if we are not careful, what we'll do is say that we are victims only of institutions and systems and not of other individuals who make up those systems and institutions. And why would that be important? Why is that important, Court? Well, it's important because the moment you start to reject your own personal responsibility for injustice and sin and immorality, you will have a misplaced sense of victimhood and pride. You'll think you're better than you are and you'll think that everybody else is worse off than they are. You'll think that you're only a victim and not a perpetrator. And the truth is we all sit here as both victims and perpetrators in our lives. If you can't say amen to that, you're just not as self-aware as you need to be. You, are, you probably have been victimized, and some of you more than others, and some of you more than others for awful reasons and the most unjust reasons. But nonetheless, what I know about you without knowing you is that you've also been a perpetrator, and it probably started before you even went to school. All you had to do was like get teeth, and you started biting kids for other snacks. You've been a perpetrator for a long time. And if you're not careful, you'll be like, you know what? The reason I'm a biter is because society made me this way. 
It's my mom's fault. It's my parents' fault. Their institution's terrible. They allowed these teeth to bite, you know? But that's you trying to shirk personal responsibility for your biting habits. And here's the thing. What Peter says to us is the most important thing that the Christian can do is take personal responsibility for their sin and sinfulness and come to a Savior who washes, washes them clean, cleanses them not from the outside but from the inside, and then makes them new again. So Peter knows this. This is foundational. Now you're probably thinking like, Court, why is this a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because if we believe that only systems and institutions are the problem and we're not the problem, by that basis, our culture is trying to tell us that if we just tweak the system, if we just tweak the institution, or if we just destroy and rebuild it, then we can have utopia. And the Bible says that is not true. The Bible says there's no utopia coming until King Jesus returns and sits upon a throne. And when he sits upon the throne, not just a heavenly throne where he's already seated, but an earthly throne in the new Jerusalem, only then will we have the utopia that all of us deeply desire. And every person who tries to tell you or feed you the line that we can have that before Jesus comes is not just telling you a bad thing, is not just telling you a wrong thing, they're telling you a demonic thing. Because they're telling you that you can have the kingdom without Jesus Christ, his cross, and his kingship. The only way that we can have the kingdom is if we have the king who died on a cross, who has a crown, who we submit to. And until he returns and rules, there's none of us that are going to do all that great of a job. And as mad as I currently am at so many people in authority who have done the wrong things, if I'm honest with myself, I'll know that if I were put in the position, I may have done worse. And that's hard to say. It's harder to say when you're in the throes of it. But here's the thing, Peter's not a cynic, you know? He's not a cynic. He asserts that as imperfect as human governments and institutions can be, he thinks that these institutions and governments were sent by God, and they were sent by God to restrain evil in the world, that anarchy's worse than the broken institutions we have. And that's something that we got to think about. You know, as bad as it is, it could be worse. <laughs> anarchy does not work out well. If you read the book of Judges, that's an encouragement, by the way. Read the book of Judges. The theme of the book of Judges is every man did what was right in his own eyes. It's the most grotesque things that you could ever imagine going on. The last story in the book of Judges, I can't say because there's too many kids in the room. It is terrible. So we need to remember anarchy is not as not as, as good as human institutions actually offer, as broken as they can be. And this is because anarchy and chaos are not the created order of God. God spoke into the chaos and darkness and he created light and order. And sin looks to go back to the darkness, go back to the chaos, and that's the will of the enemy. Now here's the difficulty that we run into historically. What happens when the ones that are sent by God to enact justice and restrain evil end up enacting injustice and restraining good? How can we be expected to submit to such institutions and not fight, right? The answer is we have an ultimate trust in the sovereignty of God over every human court and every human institution that has ever been. We believe as Christians that Jesus is still king and he still reigns over every single authority. This is why Jesus was able to boldly tell Pilate when Pilate told Jesus, don't you know I have the authority of life and death? And I could either kill you or set you free. And Jesus told Pilate, you have no authority except that which was given to you by my father. This is your hour, one hour, and the power of darkness that I've given over to you willingly. You don't take my life, I lay it down. Jesus was clear about who runs the show in the universe. And Christians, we believe it's him, it's Christ. He runs the show. The Proverbs say it like this. The king's heart is like a stream in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whichever way he will. The Lord rules sovereignly. And when we don't understand why he's allowing evil rulers to rule, we trust that King Jesus has promised every bend of history will always arc back toward the glory of God and the good of his people. So even if we feel like we're getting a long way from home, and I'm in the middle of that right now, it's going to bend back to the glory of God and our good. And then secondarily, an important story for us to remember, and maybe the most important takeaway from this first part of this text is Exodus chapter number two, when the children of Israel are in bondage and slavery to the Pharaoh, the most evil and corrupt government of the time, and they're being enslaved, they're being mistreated. It says in the scriptures that before Moses ever shows up on the scene, the children of Israel cried out to God and God heard their cries. And then the next chapter says, so he went to Moses. Moses is on the backside of the desert, right? He's away from, he goes to Moses and meets him in a burning bush. He says, listen, my children have, have been crying out to me. It's time to fix this whole Pharaoh situation. 
The primary means for change the Christian always should use is prayer. The scriptures are emphatic that before any new leader emerges, like Moses, for instance, God hears the cries of his children and responds to this. God, in his infinite wisdom, has chosen to do it this way. You might ask, why, Court? I don't know, except that he has done it this way since the beginning of time, and he still does. You want to give me a, here's a for instance. Can we all agree that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem when he was born, how he was born? All of that was predetermined. We all agree, right? You know what the Bible says? A woman named Anna, who was a widow, was praying for 70 years that she would see the Messiah to be born. And then she sees him come and says, now I can die. Simeon was another guy that was doing this. So through the prayers of this basically like unknown widow, we wouldn't even know who this woman was if the Bible didn't record her to be so. She's this woman who had apparently experienced deep sorrow by losing her husband early and just goes to the temple every day praying that Jesus would be born. And guess what God does? Jesus is born. Now you might, be, you might say, well, Cordy was going to be born anyway. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. <laughs> which is that she prayed and then he was, and Jesus was born. And I believe that God in his sovereign will has made it be that this, these two things would be connected. So if we're truly Christians who believe this, the primary thing that we should do in the face of injustice is what? Cry out to the one who has the supreme authority. Also notice in the text that he says, the emperor is supreme with a lowercase s. He doesn't say the emperor is supreme with a capital S because King Jesus is supreme with a capital S. <laughs> And so what we should do is always appeal. You know, you always feel like, like for instance, in my government situation, you're always trying to appeal to someone else, someone else with higher authority who can check and balance these people who are doing evil things. But what happens when the most supreme person is doing evil things like Nero? The answer is we have the supreme, Jesus Christ. And sometimes we have neglected to go to the chief of all authority and, and we've neglected to plead with him for the things that only he can do. But Christians, that's where we should be. So I ask you, and I'm, I'm convicted by this too, have you cried out to God about the state of affairs in our country? The, the king of kings, have you cried out to him? Have you pleaded with him for his kingdom to come, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Because here's what I'll tell you. This is really just pastorally speaking. Social media is a garbage heap. It's a garbage heap of human opinion, human pride, and human folly. It convinces us that we're making a difference and we're really just making a racket. The biggest difference that you can make is in your prayer closet alone. Jesus told us this. He said, go into your prayer closet alone. And in what happens in secret, God will reward you openly for this. And I forget this, I think, because I talk too much. I like to talk. I think I'm more influential than I actually am. My wife's been trying to tell me this for years. I think if I could say the right things in the right way for enough time, we could change minds. The problem is you're not changing minds on Facebook. And also you can't change it through Facebook because Facebook's not the mediator between God and man. You need Jesus Christ to change minds and hearts. And here's the thing, maybe start with your own. We need him to change our hearts because just like everyone else, only he gets proximal justice. Guess what you and I have? A proximal understanding of justice. We need God to teach us, and he has promised that he will. But oftentimes we're going instead to four-minute clips and videos and getting all of the information from the best human wisdom, which is really human folly. Instead, we should run to our prayer closets because Christians know that at the heart of every true change and at the heart of every true enacting of justice, it happens because a heavenly hand has pushed back darkness. And the heavenly hand moves just like the wheels of history have always moved. And I don't know why, except for God's wisdom, it happens through prayer. I don't have an answer to why. God can do anything he wants to do. He's just chosen to do it through prayer. He delights in it. He likes it. This is why Jesus, even though he was the king of kings, lord of lords, he could do anything that he wanted. He woke up in the morning and he prayed to the father. You ever thought about why? It's like, you know, Jesus, you're a member of the Trinity. It's like you guys can do the osmosis thing. Like y'all don't even, you don't even have to go to a desolate place. You don't even have to fast. Like y'all already know the plan. And yet Jesus is constantly in prayer. He's more powerfully in prayer than any other person in your entire Bible. You have Daniel, who's a real prayer warrior. He doesn't touch Jesus in his prayers. And the only answer that I can find to why Jesus is so prayerful is not just because he wants to give us an example, but because God has wired the universe in that he answers prayer. And that is how the wheels of history turn. It doesn't mean that God's not sovereign. I think he is sovereign. It's just, this is the way that he's chosen to do it. 
So it's key here. Why are we called to submit to human institutions? Well, Peter says, for the Lord's sake. Not because you think everybody, not because you think we have a stable genius in the Oval Office. Not because you think that in the second Tuesday of November, all of a sudden everything's going to be work, it's going to work itself out. And we love whoever's in office. We submit to those in authority for the Lord's sake. And what does that mean? Because we know the Lord is on the throne. And so we can be okay and even suffer in a minute here. First Peter, he's, you know, Peter's going to tell us that what is it if you suffer because of your own sin? There's more glory in suffering when you're doing good. So listen, I'm not saying that we might not suffer. I'm in the throes of suffering right now. My point is that the only reason we submit to human authority is not because we trust every human. In fact, you're untrustworthy. And so am I. You're shady because you're all about self-preservation. And apart from the grace of God, we'd always be this way. But because the spirit now lives in us, there's something new. But ultimately, we, we submit to authority because we trust Jesus. Notice that, the, that Peter doesn't call us to worship the emperor. He says we submit to them. Worship is reserved for God alone. Now, I know because you're an American, you're, you, this is where you've been wanting me to get court. Isn't there times, though, where there's disobedience because it's gone too far? Like you're an American. Like you, I joked with the 9 a.m. I said, listen, this is in you, all right? You can't wash this off. There's a party that's like, listen, the, the, the earthly kings need to be checked, so I, we exist. <laughs> if you haven't watched Hamilton, one of my favorites is when the king comes out and does his little part. I think every American loves that part because he's like, he's portrayed as kind of like, you know, squirrel. And you're like, yeah, that's about right. Because we don't like this idea. We, we step back. And here's what I will say, that the Bible actually is clear that there are times. I know you expected me to say, well, we'll just, we just always are obedient. Actually, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that when we are pressed with the binary decision to either obey God or obey man, we always obey God every time. That sometimes earthly authority oversteps and tries to make you bend your will against the will of God. And at that moment, the Bible tells us we must obey the Lord alone. Examples would be Moses or Rahab, Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or it might even be the book of Acts. Every disciple is brought into the chief priest and they are beaten for preaching in the name of Jesus. And they are ordered, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter stands up, the writer of this letter, and he says, who should we submit to? Should we obey God or should we obey man? And then he answers his own question. We will obey God and we will preach in the name. So there is a time. And that time is whenever you're challenged not to be obedient to God. Okay, then verse 15, he says, for this is the will of God. I love it when the Bible says this, you don't have to even search for it. The will of God is for you. You do not have to, you don't have to search. You can find it right here. The will of God is that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Man, you should underline that. Have you ever wondered how can you shut stupid people up? I have. And here's the thing. I feel like we have so many ignorant people, don't we? If you haven't noticed, it's like they're having babies. Ignorance and foolishness is running rampant. They're multiplying. I don't know where they're coming from. Peter says the way to do that is actually not so much in what we say. It's in how we act. Doing good silences your accusers. It silences foolishness. It silences ignorance. What we do matters so much more than what we say. Christians are called to passionately pursue the good and do the good. Now, here's the problem. Whether it's the justice system, the household, police officers, education, we can go through a lot of human institutions. If culturally we can't agree on what the good is, every human institution will ultimately falter and fracture because if we can't all agree that there's such a thing as good and evil, well, how do I know this? Well, because Peter says that the governments, the human institutions are set up to punish the evildoer and to praise the one who does good. Peter is assuming there's such a thing as good and evil, and it's not subjective. It's objective. It's not like, well, you do your good and I'll do my good. But what if my good is to punch you in the face? That's not your good. That's your evil. Evil and good are these a subject, or an objective truth, not a subjective feeling. And culturally, we have the exact opposite going on. Basically, culturally, we're being told that it's not that. It's basically, you know, everybody has their own idea of what's good and evil, and that's why we all disagree. It's why we all shout at one another rather than having any conversations. But listen, Christians, here's my encouragement to you. You already know what good and evil is. 
Like you don't have to be infiltrated by a cultural narrative here. You know what good and evil is. Here's two ways that you know. The first one is probably in your lap. If not, it's on the screen. God's revelation has been given to us by his grace so that we would have good and evil laid out before us. Now you might think, man, that's tough, Gore, because some of the things in there that said are evil, I do those things. Ding, 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 ding. You're starting to get to the whole heart of the Bible. Yes. One of the best things that happens to human beings is when they read the Bible and realize that they're a part of the evildoers. Like they're not David killing the giant, they're like Goliath. Like they're not Daniel standing up to the emperor. Like they're orc number three in Lord of the Rings, not Frodo Baggins. You know, like when you realize that, you will cherish the cross of Christ because you know it was necessary for you. It wasn't just a good deed that he did. It's not like, oh, how kind of him to die for humanity. No, if he doesn't die, you stay orc number three. Christians, we know what good is because we not only have the word, but we have goodness embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The character of God's goodness is wrapped up in a man. Jesus walked around the earth and only did good. Have you ever thought about this? Like, I think about if I had like a percentage of how much good I do versus bad, how sick I would be if I saw it on like a PowerPoint. Jesus walked the earth for 33 and a half years and only did good. Every conversation that he had, every interaction that he had, every time he sat down for dinner or went over to somebody else's house to hang out, every miracle or every restraining of a miracle that all of Jesus's actions were good and only good. And here's the good news for the Christian because the spirit of God is our teacher. He shows us the good in the person of Christ every day. You don't have to be in the dark about what's good and what's evil because we have a relationship with goodness embodied. We know good because we know Jesus and Peter is saying here, devote yourself to the good so that you can put all of these people to shame who call good evil. This was a warning from Paul. He said, there's going to come a time where people are going to call good evil and they're going to call evil good. And the only way you can shame ignorant people is by doing good because the fruit of good is always good. And the fruit of evil is always evil. And Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruits. So let's not define good on our own limited moral basis. Let's define the good by the person and work of Jesus. Look at his life, read his word, and then be rejoicing in the fact that you and I can imperfectly follow Jesus because he makes us perfect by his blood. We ain't going to be perfectly good, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus was perfectly good on our behalf. So we just stumble behind King Jesus trying to follow in his footsteps to do the good. The question we are left with is, do our lives, our speech, our actions, our behaviors, our aspirations mirror Jesus and all of the good? Because Peter believed that he could affect a corrupt regime like Rome by just doing good. That's crazy to think about. And I'll tell you, in my position right now, it's like, okay, I don't feel like I'm going to do anything by responding to people's evil with good. It's not going to change their evil hearts. But apparently Peter says, no, 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 that's the only way. Lastly, verses 16 through 17, live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. If you just took the first half of that, you guys would be like, mm, live as free people. That's a July 4th scripture. <laughs> You're about to set off fireworks right here with that one, you know? And I love this, but here's the thing. We need to be able to define freedom the way that the Bible defines freedom. And, 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 I, think, and I think even the way that probably Christians define freedom, even in the beginning of the nation that we live in ourselves. For thousands of years, Christians have has understood freedom to mean that we have been released from the bondage of our sin and therefore we can freely and willfully choose to worship God because he's freed us. We can be servants of God. You, you wonder how this juxtaposition happens? Notice Peter says, be free, live as free people as servants of God. Well, servants aren't free. Yes, they are. The only true people in the universe are those who are servants of God. Because if you're not a servant of God, you're a slave to sin. You might think that's freedom too because our culture has basically been infiltrated with this idea that in order for you to define freedom, you should define it as this, to do whatever you want, when you want, no matter who it hurts. Say, I get to do what I want. That's my freedom. It's my right. Here's what I want to tell you. That's not freedom. That's called slavery to sin and self. It's how you were born. You were born doing what you wanted, when you wanted, to whoever you wanted, until your mom came in and said, this ain't okay. If it weren't for your mom and dad to come in and redirect that little terrible heart of yours, you would have continued on that free path. And that free path would have led you straight to where slavery to sin always leads, destruction. You see, true Christian freedom is that 
Jesus frees us from that bondage to sin, and now we can actually choose the good. Peter says, listen, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Use your freedom to do the good. And then he gives you these four lines. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. These are four important things. I want to go through them very briefly. Number one, honor everyone. It's the worst thing I read last week, I'll be honest. I just want to be honest with you. You know what I do not want to do? Honor any of the people who have mistreated my family over the course of the last four years, particularly the last 70 days. I have plans, but they're way more like Liam Neeson and Taken and way less like what he's talking about. (laughs) Honor everyone is grotesque to me. It's like, how can you honor people who do vicious evil? And that's what he says. And it's not like, hey, there's an appendices where you can read about what everyone means. I wish, I wish there was an asterisk. I wish in the Greek, everyone meant some people. Instead, Peter says, human beings have been endowed with human dignity because they're made in the image of God. And therefore, no matter who a human being is, if they are a human being, I want you to listen, if they are a human being, period, then they deserve honor simply because they bear God's image, even imperfectly. That's hard to hear in some ways, isn't it? Like, it's good whenever you just think about your neighbors who like you, you know, you play bunko with and stuff. But when you start thinking about people who've really done you wrong, you're like, they don't deserve that. They deserve something else. And Peter says, no, honor everyone. But then he goes to another level. He says, love the brotherhood. Love the church. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. I joked with a 9 a.m. Again, no asterisk that says if they theologically agree with you on every minute point. <laughs> no, love the brotherhood. Love, charity, love should be here. Then the next two are absolutely next to each other for a reason, and God comes first for a reason. Fear God, honor the emperor. Notice, why did he say honor twice? The emperor goes with everybody else. God stands alone. The emperor is just another dude who's been given authority by God, and therefore he deserves honor. But he's not God. God alone is to be feared and worshiped. God alone sits on a throne and does whatever he pleases. God alone deserves our affections. He deserves our lives. He deserves all of our praise. Fearing God stands all the way over here because God is a holy God. And he's a God that loves us and has sent Christ for us and has promised a new kingdom. Fearing God stands on its own and comes first because every Christian knows that that's the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. I want to encourage you and challenge you. If you think that somehow there's going to be this moment, where we're going to get to this political utopia because we're going to get, you know, November is going to come and we're going to elect the right people. I said this in 2016 and I'll say it until I die. It ain't going to happen. I'm not saying that you don't vote and I'm not saying you don't get active. I'm not saying you don't do good. Part of doing good is being active. And I encourage you to do that. I'm just saying, if you put your eternal hope in human institutions and human people, you will be gravely disappointed. It will lead to bad fruit in your life. It'll lead you to resentment and resentment leads to evil. But if you put your hope in King Jesus, you can vote and leave there and say, you know what? The kingdom's coming and it's one day closer. And then whenever we're all going to be watching on whatever news channel you like to watch that garbage on the night of the election, we're going to figure out what happened. Then we can all go, the kingdom's one day closer and it really doesn't matter what happened here. I am not advocating apathy. I am advocating faith and priorities in our lives that King Jesus is who we trust. King Jesus is who we fear. And so I'll end with this. Jesus is our king, but we're exiles here on the earth. And I'm patriotic. I wore the American flag shirt the other day. Like I, I love our country, but I'm an exile here. I'm a citizen of the kingdom first. But I'm also called to seek the good of this earthly city. I am called to seek the good of this nation, and therefore I will. That's what Jesus called me to do. But I will do so as my eyes are always turned to the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, because I know that this city on earth that we're in, this kingdom, as much as I might like it, it pales in comparison to the glorious city that's coming. I mean, guys, if you haven't dreamed about it, if you haven't thought about it, I encourage you, as dark as it's gotten in our country, if you just spend some time thinking about what's coming for us, it'll help you out of some darkness. The promise is this, Jesus will sit on a throne, not just in heaven, but on earth. And that from his throne will flow the, flow the rivers of living water. There'll never be dark anymore. He'll wipe every tear from every single eye. There will no more be any injustice. No court of appeals will be necessary because the king's final authority, his final judgments will be righteous and altogether true. And that's what I'm looking forward to. So I ask you to do this. 
One is personal, and that's to pray for my family that the Lord Jesus would be king and he would move the streams of the king's heart into bringing my wife and daughter finally home so we can turn the page. Please do that. I think it's the number one thing we can do. We've, we've got both senators from the state of Texas advocating for us. We've got two Congress people. Dan Crenshaw is one of those. We've done everything that we can, human, humanly possible. But it's just a reminder that King Jesus still runs the show. So please pray. And then secondarily, I want to lead us in something that I'm going to ask you to do. And there's going to be more handles to this upcoming. But between now and the election, let's pray and plead with God for the good of where we live, for the good of our nation, for the leaders that are going to be in, uh, put into seats of power. Let's pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. I implore you, pull back from the rhetoric and lean into your prayer closets. And let's start that right now. It will unify us as the church. It will also unify you as the heart of God. Let us be men and women of prayer. And I'm saying this because what I know, you, the reason that I think that you're on social media and that I'm on social media and that we're all worked up is because all of us are deeply concerned about these little ones that are around us right now that I'm trying not to say inappropriate things around. Right? We're concerned about the next generation. We're concerned about where our kids are going to be. What's it going to be like? Where are they going to live? And that's why we're so passionate about it. It's why some of us are losing it. But can I tell you something? The most powerful and effectual thing that you can do is actually not type, but get into your prayer closet and pray. Nothing that you do will be that powerful. And when we do it together, it's even more powerful. So let's do that together. Let's pray. Let's ask God for help. Let's implore him. Let's, let's submit ourselves, not just to human authority, but to the ultimate authority whom all human authority rests. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll lead us in that. I confess to you, God, I'm, a, I'm a just a weak man. Not a lot in me to give, not a lot in me to offer. Least of all right now, but I thank you, Jesus, that you are a, the true and better king, the righteous king who sits on a throne right now. All authority has been given to you, heaven and on earth. So we ask right now, together as a church, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, for our nation that has been filled with violence and anger and division, heal our land. Jesus, only you can. Only you can. Move on our hearts to know how to do the good that's before us. Forgive us, Lord, where we've been more committed to rhetoric than we have been to action. Jesus, help us be a beacon, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Help the church be the church, God. Forgive us where we've fallen short, but don't let the enemy condemn us, Lord. We pray for our kids. We pray the next generation will be greater than ours. Pray that all of our fears would not come to pass, but instead you would preserve another generation that they would come to know you and serve you with all their hearts. Where we fell short, where we did not follow you, may they follow you where we spoke too often, may they be wise, where we did not speak and we should have, may they speak. Make them courageous, make them bold. And God, help us to be the parents and the leaders that provide that space for them, that invest in them. But Lord, all in all, our main hope is what you encouraged us to pray at the end of the book. Lord Jesus, come quickly. We wanna see you face to face. There's no kingdom like yours, Jesus, and we look forward to it. So come quickly, Lord Jesus. Make all the wrongs right. And until then, sustain us, your bride. Make us white as snow, we ask. And as we take communion, may the songs of our lips align with the songs of our hearts. We love you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.